Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. So far in our study of the Revelation, we've been privy to the breathtaking sights and sounds of heaven. And as we move into chapter 6, we'll find a very different air, focusing now on the condition of a world experiencing the judgment of a holy God. Let's listen as Pastor Phil teaches from Revelation chapter 6. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 6? Well, starting tonight, we are going to be moving into a section in the book of Revelation that most people actually think about when they think of the book of Revelation, and that's chapter 6 through 19. I will warn you, though, it's uh, going to be a long, deep, dark, depressing valley. I mean, if you think the evening news is depressing, you ain't seen nothing yet. Honestly, all kidding aside, nothing you have ever seen or read is going to be able to prepare you for what is coming upon the people of this world as John expresses to us and records in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. The good news is it's coming upon the people of this world called the earth dwellers. They are those who have made this earth their home. They want nothing to do with the God of the Bible. They are rebellious. They want to do their own thing. As opposed to the pilgrims, those who have received Christ, we are passing through. This is not our home. And especially if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, as we have already seen as as chapter 4 opened up, the church is caught up into heaven. So we're in heaven around the throne singing praises to, to God. And on the earth, cataclysmic judgment and upheavals are going to be being poured out. So the good news is we'll have a balcony seat. We'll be up in the mezzanine. We won't uh, have to be down here because the purpose of this is to judge the inhabitants of the world for their rebellion. And as the Bible promises us, God will not judge the righteous with the wicked. There is no reason for us to be punished with the wicked. We have received Christ. He is our Lord and Savior. We have bowed the knee to His Lordship in our lives. And so He has promised us, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, uh, and many other places, that because we have kept the word of His patience, He would also keep us from the hour of tribulation, which is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, some have argued, and I'm just kind of laying some groundwork tonight, but some have argued that because the Greek word Philipsis, which is the word for tribulation, isn't used for the first three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel, that it's wrong for us to call that first three and a half years the tribulation period. We ought to call it what Jesus called it in Matthew 24. He called it the beginning of sorrows, or actually the beginning of birth pangs. But just because a particular word isn't used to denote something in the Scriptures doesn't mean it's wrong to use that word if the concept is taught in the Scripture. Let me give you an example. The words Trinity, 
incarnation and rapture are not found in the Bible, but those concepts are definitely found taught in the Scriptures. The Bible contains the concept that a woman's birth pangs involve tribulation. In the Old Testament, one of the major words for tribulation is tesara. It's used many times. But primarily, I'm looking at Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 24, and chapter 50, verse 43. In Jeremiah 6, 24, we read, We have heard the report of it, our hands grow feeble, anguish, that's the Hebrew word tesara, has taken hold of us, pain as a woman in labor. In chapter 50, verse 43, it says, The king of Babylon has heard the report about them. His hands grow feeble, anguish, again, to Sarah, has taken hold of him, pangs as of a woman in childbirth. Now, when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, because Hebrew was a dead language for many years, as the people then spoke, the Jews primarily spoke Greek as we moved into the New Testament period. About 270 B.C., though, 70 scholars were commissioned to translate the Old Testament scriptures into Greek, called the Septuagint. And when they did that, the word that they chose to translate the Hebrew tesara into the Greek was thalipsis. And so we could read that and say, well, Jeremiah 6.24, tribulation has taken hold of us, pain as of a woman in labor. Or... In chapter 50, verse 43, tribulation has taken hold of him, pangs as a woman in childbirth. Also, in the Greek New Testament, John chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus said, A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish, that's the Greek word thalipsis, tribulation, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8, when Jesus is describing the first half of the 70th week of Daniel, he calls those three and a half years the beginning of sorrows or birth pangs. I think it's therefore acceptable for us to call them the beginning of tribulation, which is to be followed by a greater period of tribulation, which will then lead the world to the birth of the kingdom age. Renald Showers, who was a, a scholar, said on this point, he said, and I quote, Once a woman's birth pangs begin, those pangs cause her, cause her the stress of being hemmed into a trying, painful, and unavoidable circumstance of life. She has no alternative but to pass through all the pangs involved in giving birth to a child. In light of this fact, Christ's teaching to the effect that the beginning of birth pangs will be experienced during the first half of the 70th week indicated the following truths. Once the birth pangs start at the beginning of the 70th week, those pangs will cause the world the stress of being hemmed into a trying, painful, and unavoidable seven-year circumstance of life. The world will have no alternative but to pass through all of the birth pangs involved in giving birth to the Messianic age. Because tribulation will be experienced during the first half of the 70th week, to apply the word tribulation to that three and one half year period of time is not wrong, end quote. So if people try to lay a trip on you when you call the whole seven years of tribulation period, you know this, that's scriptural, all right? 
a time of lesser tribulation, first three and a half years, followed by a time of greater tribulation, which will then lead to the return of Christ and the birth of the kingdom age. So we come to chapter 6, starting in verse 1, where John says, Now I saw when the Lamb, of course, that's Jesus, opened one of the seals. Now, this takes us back to chapter 5, verse 1, where we read, as John is expressing, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So John has this is transported into heaven. He sees the throne of God. He sees God the Father sitting on the throne. A rainbow, emerald rainbow, is uh, around him. And, and, and John notices that something is in his right hand. He looks more closely and sees that it is a scroll written on both sides, sealed with seven seals. Now, as we've already said, this scroll is the title deed to the earth. Jesus Christ has bought and paid for this world on Calvary, and now we see him beginning here in chapter 6. He is beginning now to take possession of what he has bought and paid for. The first step is to purge the earth of the usurpers in getting it ready for his return and the establishment of his kingdom. Now, I want you to, we talked about scrolls back then, and I want to just refresh your memory. When we read about a scroll that's sealed with seven seals, I've seen drawings of this that artists have uh, presented, and I see this, they've uh, drawn a scroll, and then along the edge of the scroll, there's seven seals. But that's not how they were sealed. The way they were sealed was this way. You would break the first seal, you would roll it out and read that section. That would bring you to a second seal. You would break that open, roll the scroll a little little more, and read that section. That's really what's in view here. As each scroll is broken, various judgments are poured out upon, excuse me, as each seal is broken, various judgments are poured out upon the earth. And we see the first seal, then the second seal. But that's how it works. First seal is broken, scroll is is unrolled to reveal the judgments, the second seal, etc., and uh, on and on we go. Just to remind you that the final seal contains the seven trumpet judgments and the last trumpet judgment contains the seven bowl judgments. So technically, the last seal contains all the rest of the judgments that's coming upon the earth. Now, that'll be important to remember later on. Hang on to that. So again, we read in verse 1 where John says, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals... And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, there are many commentators who interpret this rider as being Jesus Christ. Why? Well, He's riding on a white horse. We all know the good guys ride the white horses. I mean, we learned that from the old black and white westerns, didn't we? It was easy to pick out the bad guys and the good guys back then. All the good guys wore the white hats, the white clothes, rode the white horses, and the bad guys, black hats, black clothes, and rode the black horses. It was easy. In the real world, of course, though, If I was a bad guy and was going to rob a bank, I certainly wouldn't come riding up on a black horse wearing a black hat and black clothes. I'd go out and get myself a white hat, white clothes, and come riding up on a white horse. I mean, that's what you do 
if you're a bad guy and you want to deceive people into thinking you're a good guy. Now, Jesus told us this is the M.O. of the devil and all of his minions, all of his servants. Jesus said to us as his people, beware of the wolves who will come to you dressed how? In sheep's clothing. He said that the prince of darkness, Satan, disguises himself as an angel of light to deceive. And if that's true, Paul says, no big deal that his ministers or his minions will disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. What I believe we have here is a deceiver, a deceiver. I think he's a false Christ, not the real Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, first of all, he's wearing a crown. You say, well, big deal. Jesus is seen wearing crowns in the book of Revelation. Yes, but he's wearing the royal crown of a king, a diadema, the Greek word is. This person is wearing a crown, but in the Greek, it's Stephanos, which is a victor's crown. Think of a laurel wreath that they would place on the head of an athlete when they won uh, a race or some other athletic competition. It's not the crown of a king. It's the crown of a victor. Secondly, we see him holding a bow. Now, whenever Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation is pictured as holding a weapon, it's always what? A sword. Always. Besides, you know, where is Jesus at this moment? He's in heaven, right? Breaking these seals. The idea that some people have come up with that he breaks this first seal, puts the scroll down, runs down to the earth, (laughs) jumps on a horse and becomes the first rider. I, I think that's stretching it a little bit. All right. Look, the real Jesus, the real Christ doesn't appear on the earth until after the tribulation period. Turn to Revelation 19. Here we see the real Jesus Christ coming to the earth. At the end of the tribulation period, starting in verse 11, we read, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, there's your white horse, and he he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, the Greek is diadems, crowns of a king. He's the king of kings, of course. And he had a name written that no one knew except he himself, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So if you have any doubts as to who this is, obviously we know now it's Jesus himself. He is the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, that's us, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that's the real Jesus Christ. This character in chapter 6, verse 2, I believe is none other than the Antichrist, who appears on the world stage initially as a man of peace. He'll be the ultimate politician and policymaker, and uh, he will appear on the scene Uh, Not long, probably after the church is raptured out of here, but um, he will appear. And he is pictured here carrying a bow. The fact that he isn't seen carrying any arrows could reinforce the idea that he doesn't initially come as a man of war. He comes as a man of peace. However, the bow doesn't have to represent a weapon. It could represent a covenant. 
In fact, the first time the word bow appears in the scriptures is Genesis 9, verse 13. And I'll read it out of the King James because it comes through really clear where God says, said, I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And of course, he's talking about the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made with Noah and the whole earth, that he would never again judge the earth with water, with a flood. Of course, that you got to read the fine print. The next time he judges the earth, it's going to be with fire. So, you know, but he promises never again with water. But the idea is that we see here that the first time the word bow appears in the scriptures, it's associated with a covenant. Now, that's, I think, significant because in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it talks about the Antichrist coming on the world scene. And it says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's a seven-year period in the Hebrew. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. So when the Antichrist comes, the first thing he's going to do, in fact, the thing that actually catapults him really onto the world stage uh, and allows the, the, the final seven-year period of human history as we know it to begin. We, sometimes Christians think, well, the final seven-year period begins with the rapture of the church. No, it does not. That's when the church age ends. But the final seven-year period on the earth, sometimes it's called the 70th week of Daniel, which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, sometimes it's called the tribulation period. Uh, the time of Jacob's trouble goes by different names in the scripture. It's that final seven-year period that will lead up to the return of Jesus Christ to the planet Earth. It officially starts when the Antichrist signs this covenant with Israel, which will probably allow them to rebuild their temple. I mean, if you could understand a man who shows up on the world scene and somehow works out some kind of a covenant, some kind of a peace treaty with Arabs and Jews that will allow them to build their temple on the Temple Mount, and we'll have a lot more to say about this, we come to Revelation chapter 11, that's quite a feat. I mean, that's quite a spectacular feat. And so this guy is going to come, and his coming will be marked by him entering into a covenant with Israel, which will officially begin this final seven-year period. Now, we are coming, as we come to Revelation chapter 6 through 19, we are coming to a period of time that the Bible has more to say about than any other period of time in human history. I mean, the Bible has more to say about this period of time than it has to say about any period of time in all of human history. Now, you don't have to turn to Daniel 9, although it is a pivotal chapter, especially verses 24 through 27. But in Daniel chapter 9, let me just sketch out, and we've gone through this before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Most of you are familiar with this. But remember, Daniel is in Babylon. He has been carried away there captive as a teenager, and he reads in the scroll of Jeremiah that the captivity was to be 70 years. He does a little quick arithmetic and realizes that the captivity is almost over with. Because he has risen to a place of prime minister over Babylon, he begins to pray and seek God as to if there's anything God wants him to do in preparation for his people being released from captivity. Well, eventually God dispatches the angel Gabriel to Daniel and gives him one of the most incredible prophecies in the entire Bible. 
And I'll just kind of paraphrase it for you. Through the angel Gabriel, uh, God said to Daniel, I have set aside 70 weeks of years to deal with the nation of Israel. Now, again, in the Hebrew, a week, which is I think the Hebrew word is heptad, could refer to a week of days. But it was just as common in the Greek mind, excuse me, in the Jewish mind, to uh, think of it as a week of years. It was depends on the context. From the context, it's obvious that the Lord is not talking about a week of days. He's talking about a week of years. So God says, I have set aside 70 seven-year periods, 490 years. And back then, a, a month, or excuse me, a year was 360 days, just so you know that. Every once in a while, they would add a whole month. We, every four years, add a day to balance the calendar. Uh, every so many years, they would add a month. The Jews, the Jews would uh, straighten out the calendar. But it was 360 days. And God said, I've set aside 490 years of 360 days each uh, to deal with the nation of Israel. 69 of those seven-year periods are going to be consecutive, contiguous. They're going to start from the time the commandment goes forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And they will continue until the Messiah comes. It's going to be a total of 69 seven-year periods or 173,000 880 days. Now, we know from history that Artaxerxes gave the command to Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem on March 14th, 445 B.C. If you add 173,880 days, and you've got to jump just for leap years, and there's some other things that you have to do. But those that have really taken the time to do this have discovered that what happens is when you add those days to that starting point, it brings you out to April 6th, 32 AD. That was the day that not only did Jesus accept worship as Messiah, he orchestrated it. Remember several times in his public ministry before that day, they tried to take him by force and make him a king, and he always slipped away, you know, and they never were able to do that. Why? Because he said, my time has not yet come. He was waiting for a very specific time, the time that was prophesied by Daniel, that when the commandment goes forth, the Jews should have known Messiah was coming. They could have figured this out. The commandment went forth from Artaxerxes of Nehemiah, March 14, 445 B.C., at 173,880 days, April 6, 32 A.D., Palm Sunday. He comes riding into Jerusalem. His disciples are cheering him on. His disciples are saying, save now. But the leadership of Israel had rejected him. And because they rejected him, I believe, if they would have received him, then he would have brought the kingdom age in, and we would have all been left out, of course. Thank goodness they rejected him for our sakes, nothing else. But remember, after he was rejected, he said to the leadership, you're not going to see me anymore until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He leaves Jerusalem, goes across the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and he sits down by, you know, probably an olive tree in the Garden of Gethsemane somewhere. His disciples come to him and say, well, it's obvious, Lord, you're not going to establish the kingdom now. In fact, you're talking about going away. Tell us, what are the signs going to be of your coming back and the end of the age? The end of man's rebellion. That's the age they were thinking of. The Jews had been taught that this present age is an evil age of darkness and rebellion where man is rebelling against God. And, and, and there were, they were looking for a glorious new age where Messiah would come and establish a kingdom on the earth where there would be peace and righteousness and so on. 
And so they're, they've been looking forward to this ever since they started following him three and a half years earlier. And it reached a fever pitch on Palm Sunday, and they thought, this is it, here we go. And then all of a sudden it's over. He's talking about going away. And so they asked him, well, when are you coming back, and what are going to be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? And he launches into what is called the Olivet Discourse or the, or the teaching on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24. Now, we'll get to that in a moment. I'm just trying to sketch out this for you a little bit. But when Jesus was rejected on Palm Sunday, God's prophetic time clock for the nation of Israel stopped at 69 seven-year periods. They had been fulfilled. That left one seven-year period left. Now, in between... That 69th seven-year period and the 70th seven-year period has been a gap of 2,000 years. And in that gap, God has placed what age? The church age. We are in the church age. It will end when the rapture happens. And I personally don't think that as soon as the rapture happens, it's not going to be that long before the Antichrist makes his appearance. That's my feeling. I don't think it's going to be years and whatever. I think it's going to be, you know, maybe weeks, possibly months. I don't think it's going to be years. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him, day by day. Day by day.